to serve and love and be around. So if you have a high schooler and they're not involved in uh, the, the student ministry here, man, I would really encourage you to think about that. Uh, we really have a, have a nice little uh, messed up little family over there. So <laughs> beautiful people. Uh, it's, it, it is an honor and a joy to get to serve them. Um, so uh, somewhere in the middle of the 1990s, uh, human civilization reached its pinnacle. Um, yeah. Now, I wasn't born in the 90s. Get out of here. I was born in the 80s. Now, um, we had been striving. We'd been trying to, to reach great heights, and finally, finally we did. Uh, it changed everything. Uh, our whole world was, uh, was uh, made new. Uh, you may think I'm talking about the, the advent of the Internet, but what I'm actually talking about is the movie Dumb and Dumber. Now, in that movie, uh, Lloyd and Harry are on a, a bit of a journey to go to a little place. I'm talking about Aspen. And uh, they, on their journey, there's a moment where uh, Lloyd is driving, and he has an opportunity to go one way, which would take them to the destination, or he could go another way, which would take them to the middle of Lincoln, Nebraska. Uh, being that the movie is called Dumb and Dumber, you can probably figure what happened. And, and there's a point where they're, there's a scene in the movie where they're driving, and, and uh, Harry, Lloyd's partner, says, man, I, I thought the Rocky Mountains would be a little bit rockier. And they say something derogatory about John Denver at that point. But, but the point is, they think they're looking at Colorado. They think they're looking at what should be the Rocky Mountains, and they're actually looking at the plains of Nebraska. And so uh, today we're talking about Jesus as the image of God. Um, and, and so sometimes I think we think we're looking at God, but we're actually looking at something else. Um, we, during the worship set, we read a, a bit from Colossians. And that's where we're going to be working today. So I'm going to invite you to turn over there. Colossians chapter 1, as we're working through this book of Colossians. Uh, we're going to kind of pick up there in uh, verse 9. So I invite you to turn over there. Uh, if, you, if you have a Bible, the best thing to do is be... Open that to Colossians. I'm going to throw some other verses your way. Um, Those will be uh, behind me on the screen. Uh, So we invite you to to hold your place in Colossians, and we'll go from there. Okay, so uh, one of the things that I've found in studying this passage is just how dense it is. Uh, The thing about poetry is you say a lot in a a little amount of space. There's an efficiency of words that takes place. And, And this section that we're that we're going to be working in today is actually, it's a hymn, it's a poem, uh, it's written with very intentional language. And so, man, I've wrestled with this passage all week, just trying to figure out, like, what what do you guys need to hear about this? Because the the fact of the matter is, the truth that's contained in these these short uh, bit of verses is so explosive and so powerful. But I find sometimes that, man, like, I can... I can see this truth, I can see this big thing that God is trying to tell me, but trying to get my arms around it in a way that is uh, intelligible, that makes sense, sometimes is really hard. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of wade into this together today. It's going to be a little hard. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when talking about Christian theology, he said that Christian theology describes another world. He said it, it might be expected that it would be a little difficult to comprehend, at least as difficult as modern physics. And so it's kind of with that... Uh, mindset that we step into this, but you know what Jesus does is he sort of pushes back on that a little bit, and he says, those who who would come to me like a little child, and so we're trying to find the medium ground between astrophysicist and little child here this morning, 
Um, and some of you guys, that's really easy because you are an actual astrophysicist. Now, uh, for me, it's a little bit harder, but we're going to wade into these waters together. We're going to try to see what, uh, what Paul is telling us in this uh, poem. Now, the thing that I, I find uh, to be true about everyone is that we are all theologians. Uh, we all have something to say about who God is. We all have something to say about, uh, even, even if you don't believe that God exists, even if you don't believe he's real, then by the way you live your life, the things that you say, you're saying something about who God is, right? Or who he's not. Um, and so we all, by the way that we speak, by the way that we spend our money, by the things that we do, we are saying something about who we believe God to be. Uh, Paul, in this passage, is wading into uh, some waters that we'll call Christology. It's about who Jesus is. It's about the fullness of his character. And we're going we're gonna to try to explore that here this morning. But we have to understand that our lives, the things that we do, are always telling other people around us something about who God is. And so we want that to be pointed at truth. We want that to be pointed at actual, uh, you know, the actual person of God, not some uh, counterfeit. Okay, so Colossians 1. We'll start in verse 9 because that's kind of going to set us up for where we're going. He says, For this reason, since the day we have heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have a great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. If you ask me what Paul was trying to communicate to the Colossian church, I think it, this is it in this little bitty section here. And we'll just kind of break it down. Verse 9, he says, We have not stopped praying for you. We want God to fill you with the knowledge of who he is. Uh, verse 10, so that you may live a life, so that your actual daily moments may honor God in every single way. And Paul seems to hold up that this is actually possible. Uh, verse 11, that you would be strengthened with his power so that you can endure, that you would have patience in this life. And verse 12, so all of that would result in a joyful and thanksgiving relationship to the Father. And I think that sometimes, we talk about, we talk about uh, Lent, and we talk about uh, times of abstaining and times of, of, of dry and desert times, but how often do we talk about thanksgiving? Like how often do our lives model a joyful life? I mean, have you ever been around somebody who just has, has that kind of mentality? They just see the good in everything? They, they have a lot of joy in them? Aren't those the kind of people that you want to be around? I mean, I think as Christians, this is just a little aside, but we should be the kind of people who are joyful, who are looking to God and giving Him thanks for the things that He's given us. So this is Paul's, almost his thesis statement. This is what I want you to, to be. This is who I think you can become if you would see uh, who God is. In verse 15... He's going to move down to who Jesus is. He frames us in, in the context of a poem. So he's going to say these things in very, very efficient, very pointed language. So let's go there. It says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Okay, so last time I spoke, which was two weeks ago, I... Uh, what I wanted to do was just illustrate to you very clearly that God the Father, in all his fullness, looks like Jesus. And, and to do that, I told you a parable, just as Jesus did. The parable of, of the prodigal son, the prodigal father, Luke 15. Because to me, that, that story 
in such a vivid way, depicts who God is. He is a loving Father. He continually wastes His love upon us, even when we don't deserve it. He, he chooses reconciliation over judgment. That is who God is. He is the image. The Son is the image of God. And so today, we want to break down that language a little bit more and see what Paul might have had in mind as he was saying these things. Okay, so it says that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That word firstborn, uh, for a first century Jew, had, had implications for uh, family uh, relationships. The firstborn was the one who was to receive the majority of the inheritance. The firstborn son was the most important person in a family. And so what Paul is saying here is that as the firstborn, it's not that Jesus was created. It's that he deserves all the inheritance of all creation. That he is first in time and in rank. That he is preeminent. He is over all. It says in verse 16, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth. Now, in this, in this uh, framework that Paul is working from, in the Jewish mindset, uh, the, the, the Jews believe that, that God, uh, in his creative uh, exhibition in Genesis 1, that he exerted his wisdom, that, that through wisdom he created the world. Uh, if you look at um, Proverbs 3.19, it says, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. Uh, they believe that, that the, the attribute of God that was present at creation, uh, along with his love and grace, was wisdom. Now, Proverbs is going to do something uh, really interesting and really uh, kind of cool, is they're going to make wisdom into a person. Wisdom becomes less of an attribute of God, less of a, a figure of his character, and, and it, it, it becomes an actual person. So we'll look in uh, Proverbs eight twenty two. 23. This is wisdom talking in this section. It says, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was formed long ago at the ver- very beginning when the world came to be. And so this, this wisdom now takes on a personification. Uh, they, they begin to understand that, that this wisdom was a figure apart from who God was. John will pick up this language in, in the prologue to his gospel. When he talks about the Logos, the Word, he says in verse 1 of John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, all things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. Proverbs 8.35 will say, For those who find me, find wisdom, this is wisdom talking again, find life. And so Paul is working from this framework of wisdom personified. Of of wisdom not as a a virtue of God's character, but an actual uh, existing being. Um, Now, I want to kind of put just a little bit of a a face to this. So we're going to check out this little video that I have up here. And uh, and I want you to see that Paul is talking about Jesus as God's agent in creation. That through Jesus, not through wisdom, God created the world. And I want to just kind of paint an image of what this looks like. You can hit that video, Matt.
talks in Genesis 1 about, about creation being existing in chaos. And, and just like the guy's pouring the salt on that metal plate, there's chaos, there's disorder. But when God speaks, when his word is heard, then there is order. Then out of chaos comes shalom, out of chaos comes peace. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Paul is saying that he is the image of the invisible God, that through him all things were made. That Jesus is actually that voice of God, personified, taken on flesh and blood. That Jesus is the frequency of the voice of God. In that video, when they would apply different tones, different frequencies uh, to uh, the metal plate, different patterns would erupt, and there's sound waves all around us, even now. Uh, things that we can't see, things that are going on in this world beyond our, the, the, the spectrum of our eyes. And God is, is demonstrated to us that his voice brings order from chaos. And Paul is saying that that voice is Jesus. In John 1, uh, verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This logos, this, this spoken word, Jesus Christ in the flesh, comes to us. So Christ is the agent, God's agent in creation. Through Jesus, uh, God made the world. We still have this, this image of God language that we're working with. So we talked about it means preeminence of time and rank as God's firstborn, yes. Um, but, but even more so, uh, the image of God is, is not just a description, it is also a role. If you remember back in Genesis 1, God decides to create his pinnacle of creation, male and female. And he creates them in what? In his image. And so you have to remember that this letter was written to a church where they would have listened to it being read. And so this language is is sparking in them. They're like, image of God, that sounds familiar. The image of God was not just a description of the people, but it was a role. God tells them to fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, to be fruitful and to multiply. This is God's task to the image of God. Now, all this sounds pretty subversive, like pretty powerful language, right? Like you need to establish your authority. This is what he's telling the male and the female. This is what he's given them to do. And, and Jesus is the image of the Son of God. He is made in his image just as we are uh, made in his image. So this image is a, is a role. It is a description of who Jesus is. And as God said to uh, subdue the earth, multiply, be fruitful, multiply, Jesus actually demonstrates what that means to do that. Matthew 5, he says things like the meek shall inherit the earth. He says things like blessed are the peacemakers. Uh, Blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Uh, We think of of subduing, we think of establishing dominion as exerting our power, as, as showing how strong we are. But Jesus shows us that in order to be fruitful and to multiply, we have to give ourselves away just as God does in creation. Graciously, he gives of himself. And so Jesus, as the image of God, is the exact representation of what God looks like. Yes, and that's what we talked about with Luke 15. But he's also the one who fulfills what God made humanity to do. God put the people in the garden to give them something to do. Um, in heaven, we kind of think of this eternal bliss where we're floating on a cloud and, you know, maybe singing every once in a while. And for those of you who hate singing, that sounds like a terrible place to be. But what if, what if in heaven, as God's image restored and renewed, what if there's a task? What if there's something to partner with God? Because God created humanity as his partners. 
You know, my dad used to pull me out in the garage or he would pull me outside when he was working on a project and he would invite me to help. You know what my father did not need? My help. He did not. But he knew that, that giving part of himself, that giving part of his time, that giving part of his wisdom was worth the time that we spent together. Now, I have to be honest, my father was here uh, a couple weeks ago, and we were working on a couple projects, and th- there was a couple points, like, we don't even fight anymore about it. I was just like, Dad, um, you know me. Like, I, I don't know what happened to me. I don't know what got mixed up in the gene pool here. But you, the stuff you're saying, I just don't understand. When it comes to fixing things or building things, uh, not really my thing, okay? And so I, me and my dad, we laugh about it a little bit. But my dad would pull me out, and yeah, I may not have, have borne a lot of fruit in my adult life, uh, but he would take the time. And this is what God does. God, sure, he could run the world by himself. He doesn't need us. But because of God's love, because of who he is, he is a relational God. Let us make man in our image that we, would be, uh, that we would be fruitful and multiply. Because he is a relational God, he invites us to be partners with him. And so man, us, as the image of God, man and female, was always supposed to be a partner with God. This is why the results of the fall are not just limited to our own sin. Uh, Genesis 3 pronounces a curse upon all of creation. This is the beauty of Romans 8. Romans 8 talks about all of creation being renewed because of what Jesus has done. So the image of God is not just a description. It's a role that Jesus fulfills totally. We were supposed to be God's partner. We we betrayed. We rebelled against that. But Jesus is the one who fully uh, exhibits what it means to be human. Jesus fulfills this role. That's the, the purposes that God had marked out. And, and the beauty of this is in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul tells us that we all, us, will be transformed. That we, will be, uh, we are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. As part of God's new creation people, we are being made like Jesus to fully, to fully live out what it means to be human. Alright, so let's go on. Verse 17 or let's, let's read the end of verse 16 here. All right, it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have, created, have been created through him and for him. All things created through him and for him. Now this language here, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, uh, what do you think of when you think of that? Government? Uh, maybe, maybe your boss? What, what do you think of when you think of authorities? You think of somebody that's over you. Now, Paul certainly had this in mind, talking at the end of Romans about how we are to live in light of uh, the authorities. But, but Paul also has uh, something different in mind. You see, Paul understands that rulers and authorities have been given a trust from God. That the way that they rule their little, whatever kingdom, whatever definition that is, how they rule their little area that God has given them to rule, uh, they will answer for. And so as Paul talks about authorities, he's certainly talking about uh, governmental authorities. Uh, you you got to remember for Paul, he's in prison as he's writing this. And so he writes that all these powers, all these authorities, all these rulers have been created in him and for him. So couldn't it sound like Paul is saying that all these, all these, because wicked governments, right? Like if you think about this in the terms of, I watched Valkyrie last night. If you think about this in the terms of World War II, like was, was Hitler's regime created in him and for him? 
It's a legitimate question, right? Now, Paul understands that behind every power, every, every authority on earth, there is a spiritual force. Now, we live in a demythologized age, right? We know that people get sick because there's germs. We know that weather happens because of the movement of fronts, the movement of tectonic plates, right? But Paul's understanding of the world is, is completely uh, in harmony with that. He would not have any objection to the uh, advances of modern science. But what he's saying is, is that behind those unseen forces, there are, uh, there are spiritual powers. They have the ability to choose. They have the ability uh, to, to rebel just as we did. And so Paul, as he's saying that, that in him uh, and for him are all the thrones, the powers, the rulers, and authorities, is he saying that God is responsible for really the evil that, that, that governments, that people do? Well, no, he's saying that they have a choice too. He's saying that they too will be redeemed, that they too will come under God's gracious rule. In uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, Paul talks about uh, what it looks like when the kingdom of God is handed over to Jesus. And he says that, that there will come a day when all those thrones, all those powers will be subdued under Christ's rule. Uh, if you think about it this way, uh, in World War II, the war was effectively over when the Allies landed on Normandy. Right? Like, the war was not actually over. A lot of stuff happens beyond that. But that was the final blow. And for Paul, the, the cross was the blow that, that dealt these powers their, their death sentence. Uh, you'll, you'll see in uh, Colossians 2.15, he talks about disarming these powers, about nailing them to the cross and making a public spectacle of them. And, and so for Paul, he sees, this, uh, he sees his world in this context. He sees that the world will become under Christ's rule and reign. But he also sees, as he says in, in Ephesians 6.12, that our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That there are unseen forces that are going on in this world. Uh, we struggle against principalities, rulers, and, and authorities in high places. He's talking about spiritual things here. And I know we get a little, a little weary when we start talking about, uh, you know, demons and angels. We picture the little guys on our shoulder. Not really Paul's uh, picture of that. We have to understand that there are spiritual forces at work in this world. They have been given the same freedom, uh, the same power that we have to choose or not to choose uh, to live in line with God's good world. And so when Paul says that in him and for him, all these powers, all these authorities were created, he's saying that they owe their allegiance to Jesus Christ. Uh, they just may have chosen not to give it, but they will. There will come a day, Philippians 2, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is king of the universe. And so this is really cosmic and really big, right? And that's why we started a couple weeks ago with just saying that God looks like Jesus, because this is really, really weighty stuff. Now, this, this uh, cosmic nature of this doesn't result in dualism. Uh, we kind of think of, you know, we tend to think our favorite movies have this good and evil struggle. And usually evil's pretty smart. Like, if you've seen the second Batman movie, like, the Joker, like, the timing of the stuff that he performs is just unbelievable, right? Like, and, and he apparently his, his, uh, his posse, his crew, is made up of, of a bunch of uh, rejects from a mental facility. These guys are amazing. Like, they are one step ahead of everybody all the time. And, and our favorite movies, we have to have this sort of equal struggle, struggle of good versus evil. 
This is not what Paul is talking about here. He's not talking about dualism. He says they all owe their allegiance to Christ. They, in him, uh, they were all created. They all owe their authority to him. Uh, so he's not talking about a, a struggle for, for good and evil. He's talking about that two-stage process in Corinthians. Yes, they exist now in rebellion to the Father, but they will be subdued. All right. Uh, at the end of that uh, First Corinthians passage is beautiful. It says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so we know that death is still a part of our existence now, but it will not be forever. If you read Revelation in 21 and 22, you see that God will put an end uh, to all sorrow, to all pain, to all sickness. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. And so Jesus is the image of God. He, he is the firstborn of all creation. Uh, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created in him. Paul goes on, he says that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is sustaining this whole world, even the world that's in rebellion to him. He is patient, he is gracious, he is waiting. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And so Paul moves on, he moves from creation, as he's talked about in the first couple of verses, to new creation. He says, now he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the resurrected son, uh, the first one to go ahead of us. And he's the head of the body, uh, the church. Now, uh, the church is the place where God is working out his purposes, where, where he has uh, transferred his presence. He is, he's demonstrating that he wants to be with us, uh, that he is present among us. He's demonstrating that we have a task to do, that as his renewed, redeemed image, that we are to live out what it means to be people of the resurrection. That we are to live out what it means to be people of God. And look at what Jesus is doing. He, he reconciles all of creation. It says, verse 19, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. The church is to be the outworking of God's peace. We are to be the people in this world who live out the redeemed story of what it means to be renewed, what it means to be reconciled to God. And not just so we have uh, comfort and peace knowing that we are forgiven, but reconciled to His purposes, reconciled to live out what it means to be uh, the people of the resurrection. Now, uh, verse 19, it says, For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. Um, for those of you who may be a bit skeptical about who God is, and, and I, this is a beautiful truth, and I want to keep coming back to it, uh, because it, it says that for all God's fullness dwelled in Him, and that Him is describing Jesus. So if you think that, if you think that, that Jesus, uh, as a representation of God, was, was on some sort of mission uh, to, to secretly uh, establish a sort of conspiracy, or He was just trying to get rich, or you think that, that it was all just a ploy to kind of fool a bunch of foolish people. Look at who Jesus really was. Would, would you look logically at, at who the Gospels present Jesus as? Jesus was a peasant man born to a peasant family. He lived his life, not, not a long time, 33 some odd years, we think. He, he, he came and, and he spoke and he was, uh, he was welcomed for a while, but then ultimately rejected. He did not fight the, the, the oncoming of his death. He didn't uh, put up a fight. In fact, when Peter, his, his uh, disciple there, uh, when they come to arrest him, and, and he chops off the guy's ear, he says, Peter, put your sword away. I'm not, this is not what I'm here for. 
He did not come to start a rebellion. He did not come to institute a religion. He did not come, uh, he didn't write anything. Like we don't have Jesus' writings. The only thing he ever wrote disappeared in the sand. Can you look logically at who Jesus was? Because Paul is saying that this Jesus is the image of God. No, what did he actually do? Well, he came, he dined with the outcasts of society. He went to those people who most people wouldn't have five minutes for. And he spent time with them. He looked them in the eyes and wanted them to know that they had eternal worth. He, he calls a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who's been exiled not only uh, from her family, not only from her uh, community, but she's spent all the money that she has. She can't get well. And, and this communicates to her that God is not pleased with her. And he looks her in the face and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Can you look at who Jesus actually was? And not some caricature, not some misrepresentation or counterfeit picture. Can you look at who Jesus actually was? Because this is who Paul is saying is the image of God. He came and he died for these people. He, he Ultimately, he gives his life on the cross. And he says, forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. At the moment when they're mocking him and they're taunting him, he says, God, they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. Can you look at who Jesus actually is? Because that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God, the maker of all heaven and all earth, is, is taking up residence in Jesus Christ. And guys, I think if we can move past some of those, those fake pictures that we get of who Jesus apparently is, we see a beautiful, gracious, loving God. And all His fullness dwells in Him, Paul says in verse 19, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through His blood, shed on the cross amen jesus gives of his fleshly body that 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 power that we saw in the video that power become flesh gives of himself for us now i know this like i man i i struggled with this passage mightily i did i i struggled to to kind of see what what needs to be said so i thought of a couple things first of all the phrase all things is so prevalent in this in this passage have you have you seen that all things were created. All things reconciled. Jesus is not concerned with our souls as some sort of disembodied, dualistic world. Jesus is concerned with our world. The reason that God takes on flesh and blood is to redeem His creation. To say to the world that He created and made and said that it was good, He's saying to it again that it is still good. That he didn't mess up. And God has, has, has shown us that He is concerned with all things. But what do we do in our response to Jesus? Well, we're like, oh, you can have all things from uh, 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. All things fitted into there. What Jesus is embodying is that there are no compartments in our life. Guys, it doesn't make everything you do that's not churchy bad, okay? But it's saying that there's a redeeming purpose for the things that God has put in front of us. That as kingdom people, as resurrected people, we have to look at the world through the lens of who Jesus is as he reveals God in fullness. This means, this means that our politics, that Fox News or NPR, wherever you stand, speak for Jesus. Because Jesus is about a kingdom, a, a kingdom that's not this world. This means that the way we see people has to be defined by who Jesus is. This means that the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money, has to be looked at through the lens of the kingdom. And guys, I know how easy it is to sort of say, all right, God, like, you, you got your spot over here. Like, just chill on that, all right? 
leave me alone. Guys, all things. But, you know, here's the beauty of that. We think, I think, tend to think of uh, submitting all things to Christ as some sort of slavery, when in reality it's the ultimate freedom. Just as we looked at the actual picture of God as somebody so, so giving, so gracious, so loving, a God who would rather himself be killed than to kill his enemies, a God who would take all the weight of sin and death upon himself, like, isn't that God beautiful? Isn't he worthy of our time? Isn't he worthy of our worship, of our efforts? He wants to redeem all things. And I wonder sometimes how much we have let that truth begin to seep into our lives. You know, I've, uh, Courtney and I have been parents now for three months. And so we have some experience with what it means for everything to change. Now, let me just tell you a couple things I've learned. First of all, nobody tells you that babies don't just go to sleep on their own. I mean, seriously, I thought that would be the most uh, no-brain, easy part. Like, when the baby's tired, lay it down. Man, my lovely daughter puts up a fight at bedtime. Uh, She is so strong and beautiful, and I love everything about it. It's so feisty. But at the same time, I just thought, like, I almost thought it'd be like, all right, Dad, I'm going to bed. And I'd be like, all right, good night, love. So that, uh, that has changed my world. It is, you know, when people talk about the days getting shorter, they weren't kidding. Like, some days I get home at 5.30 and it's like, I, I've been working on this for three hours now. It's 8.30. It's, uh, I, I guess I'll go to bed. I don't even know what to do. Things have changed. Uh, we didn't just, uh, like the baby didn't just come into our world and we're like, okay, uh, Evie, uh, just kind of figure it out. Um, we'll, we'll be over here. We're going to go do our normal routine. Uh, we'll check in and make sure you're doing okay, right? Like, make sure that everything's going okay. But uh, no, we ordered our life around her, especially Courtney. Like, I've seen, one of the most beautiful things I've seen is how Courtney, just so selflessly and, and, and uh, really tirelessly, gives of her time, her love to, to our beautiful daughter. Uh, but man, things change. We started to, to, to construct the room. We started to change. Like, eventually this baby's going to start moving, apparently. And... Man, I, I don't know if I have enough eyes in my head to watch her. Like, she already does things. I'm like, wait, you're not supposed to be able to do that yet. Like, sit down. We're going to have to baby-proof the house. When your reality changes, when things happen that, that, that change everything, it's not a bad thing, right? Like, the things that really, that really shape and mold our lives, man, they're, they're so worth it. And this is what Jesus is saying to us. He's saying, I'm redeeming all things. This means that your jobs, the, the, the ways that you spend your time can be redeemed. They can be renewed for God's good purposes. The sports that you play, the things that you enjoy are all open in God's good world. Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful truth. It doesn't mean that everything's good. Jesus is the fullness of the God. He reveals Him. We can't just say that everything's true anymore, right? No, John says that He came in the fullness of grace and truth. That if we want to see what's true about the world, we, we look to Jesus. He has the final word about who God is. He has the final word about the way the universe works. But again, He's more gracious, more loving, more self-giving, more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Maybe the world is in itself that. Man, I, I, it, Watson Jones talked about amplifying our picture of Christ last week. And man, that's, that's what I hope we're doing today. Is seeing a God who's a lot bigger and a lot better than maybe we have seen Him to be uh, before. Resurrection, God's 
coming to us as his people changes everything. And, and look at what he says, Paul. He says that he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the resurrected son, yes and amen. He is the head of the body, the church. This is the second thing I, I saw. Is that this group of people, in some, some amazing, twisted way, embodies the coming of God's kingdom. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But only as we live that out, only as we invite God uh, to, to redeem all things in our lives, only as we submit all things to Him. But, but notice that Paul is framing all of this through his church. He's writing to a church in Colossae, you know, not that different from our church a couple thousand years ago. He's saying, I want you to grow. I want you to grow in maturity. I want you to grow in love for one another. I want you to be strengthened so you can endure. I want you to give joyful thanks to the Father. And, and we as his people, as his church here today, have that opportunity to, to hear Paul's words and respond in kind. And so we are the embodiment of Christ's resurrection. You and me, John 13, by, by your love for one another, the world will know that you are my disciples. And so it's a, it's a beautiful challenge to our time. It's a beautiful challenge to our lives. But God is inviting us to embody that as we go into the world uh, with the truth that Jesus is Lord of all things. This passage is so big, so cosmic. And we as his church are to embody that. And you know the way that we get to do that? The way that Jesus came. We go to the places that are broken. We, we say, yes, God, I will accept your challenge. I will be a person who follows you even when it's hard. We eat together. We look each other in the eyes and we say, you matter to God, that you are important, right? That Jesus came dining in, in the kingdom of God, showing what it looks like. That's who we get to be as his church. And so as, a, as an embodiment of who God sent Jesus uh, to, to be and to do, have an amazing, amazing task ahead of us. And so as we, as we embrace that, Paul ends this little section by saying this. He says, Once you were alienated from God, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Guys, this is the reality that we have available to us today. And, and as we wrap up, I'm going to invite our, our worship band to come up. We're going we're gonna to respond just in a time of worship. Uh, there'll be people over here, if you have uh, needs that you would like prayed for, they will be there. But guys, he says, he has reconciled us. That, that yes, we were enemies of God because of our, the, the, the devolution of our minds, because of the brokenness of the way that we saw the world. We didn't see it the way that God made it. And so we rebelled. We made it about us. We started striving for things that would, that would make us, uh, that we thought would make us happy. And God was inviting us into something bigger all along. Like, guys, if you look at your lives as a story, we have so much written for us right here. Because God is not uh, giving you a bunch of rules and regulations. He's telling a story, and then he's inviting us into it. He says he's the firstborn from the dead. There will be others. Uh, his resurrected people will follow him. And, and we have the chance in this life to live that out because, because we are reconciled to him. And guys, I know there's some of us sitting in here today uh, who don't really know what that could possibly mean. Because for the God of all the universe, the one who sees it all, who knows it all, to love little old you seems impossible. But perhaps, perhaps Jesus uh, has come to show you today that he 
has, has died for you. Yes, not the person sitting next to you, but you. Perhaps God is demonstrating to you that He wants all of you, that He wants to redeem all things in your life. Maybe you're a Christian. You've been holding on. You've been compartmentalizing your life. God is inviting us into something this morning. I hope that you'll see that this picture of, of Jesus as the image of God is so big. It's so much bigger than these little counterfeit images that we get. It's cosmic. He is king of all the world, past, present, and future. He is coming for us, and amen. But he has given us a story to live out here in the present. And if you don't know him, he's inviting you to reconciliation, to sit down across the table from you and say, you matter. You have eternal worth as I demonstrated on the cross. Guys, let's live that out. Let's live that out as we go into our lives, into our world this week. Will you join me? Will you guys stand as we sing about God's character, about His presence here this morning? Thank you. 